Hi, this is Stephen Cherry for Radio Spectrum. There's a Silicon Valley VC who might have been the first to call cars mobile phones with wheels. At least, I heard him say that back in 2015. That's only somewhat true for today's cars. No phone has a multi-speed transmission or a timing belt. No phone needs oil changes and new spark plugs. You know what else doesn't need any of those things? Electric cars. If any cars are mobile phones with wheels, it's electric cars. And just as the switch from landline phones to mobile phones was quick, and from computers to smartphones was maybe even quicker, the shift from engines to motors, from internal combustion cars to electric ones, is starting to gain momentum, and when it starts to have scale, it will happen quickly. How quickly? Pandemic aside, Tesla would be on track to sell half a million cars in 2020, all of them electric. By contrast, GM sold almost 3 million cars last year, almost none of them electric. But by 2025, GM plans to sell a million electric cars a year. A year that the company thinks might be a tipping point toward electrics. Why? To quote one executive, the better driving and owning experience. When you get used to charging your vehicle like a phone at night, when you charge it and you don't worry about it, you never have to stop at a gas station. There's a lot to be said for that kind of lifestyle. Of course, to do that, you need amazing batteries and an amazing capacity to produce batteries, both of which are at the heart of the company's plans. So much so that an upcoming article in IEEE Spectrum focuses on a new GM battery factory in partnership with LG Chem that will dwarf Tesla's Gigafactory and power, pun intended, its drive, pun intended again, to that 2025 goal of a million electric cars. The author of that article is Lawrence Ulrich, a longtime contributing editor at Spectrum and a noted auto maven. He also writes about cars for the New York Times, Car and Driver, and elsewhere, and has test-driven more cars than can be found on the Hertz lot at a mid-sized airport, or so it seems. Lawrence, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Stephen. Let's start with the batteries themselves. They're very different from Tesla's. They are. They're called Ultium batteries. And where Tesla started off with the, you know, the small, almost AAA cells that you would find in a typical laptop and put thousands of them together for their original Tesla Roadster, and they're still using that approach today, General Motors and some other legacy automakers are going to so-called large format cells or prismatic cells. And they're packaged up for General Motors in these pouches. They're called a pouch format. The upshot is efficiency, ideally, that you're going to be able to pack more energy into a smaller space. And that's what General Motors is up to. And if all goes well, they'll be producing 250 million of these pouch cells a year from a plant in Lordstown, Ohio. And Lordstown has its own significance. This is the site of a somewhat notorious General Motors plant from the 70s that became kind of a poster child for labor strife in America. And this plant in Lordstown produced some basically crappy small cars with names like Vega and Cavalier before it turned into a much more model plant in the, in the late 90s. Plant was shut down, and the area ever since has been starving for jobs. President Trump got involved, and the, the whole place became a kind of a political football. But this plant is one of those heartwarming stories, potentially, bringing jobs back to a struggling area in Ohio that could really use them. So the batteries themselves, they differ from Tesla's in size and shape. You mentioned the chemistry is different as well. Apparently, the, these will use a lot less cobalt. Why is that important? Yeah, well, the big drive, of course, around the world is to eliminate the precious metals and batteries. 
cobalt is mined under very inhuman conditions and in places around the world. We managed to spend several decades not worrying about the effect on the planet of raking oil out of everywhere and the attendant pollution. Now that's an issue. Yeah, so how do the uh, two battery systems compare in price overall? When it comes to pricing, in some ways, we don't really know. Companies keep that information really close to vest. But what we do know is that battery prices around the world are falling dramatically. They're essentially a commodity. You know, a mistake people make in this, and I can fall prey to it too, is considering this solely as some kind of horse race, as if a Tesla or another company is going to have some battery breakthrough that no one or a chemistry that no one else has seen and that no one else will have access to. In the history of automobiles, that's never, ever been the case. If one company has something, another company can either imitate it, license it, get it their own way in very, very short order. In fact, most of the big technologies in the world now come from global suppliers and not from the auto companies themselves. And they might have brief licensing agreements to work with a single company, but they never last. So it's better to look at it as a, it's a worldwide drive to reduce the price of these batteries. Any advantage in batteries, I've come to believe for one company or another, is going to be a very, very short-lived advantage, just in the same way as any innovation in safety from anti-lock brakes to adaptive cruise control rapidly sweeps through the industry. But that's a good thing. You know, this is technology. This needs to be more than about technology and $100,000 Teslas and half million dollar electric supercars. It needs to be in a technology that's in the bread and butter family cars that we all can afford. So the pricing of battery that was just exorbitant a decade ago is just falling and falling and falling. And the holy grail is the $100 per kilowatt hour level. And it's looking like the entire industry is just beginning to push the price below that. One technology advantage that GM might have for, as you say, at least in the short term, is a, a unique monitoring system within the battery. General Motors has what's called a wireless battery management system, and it is absolutely a world's first. Most of your battery packs, if you look, they have this tangle of wiring that monitors the state of charge in individual cells. GM has found a pretty elegant solution for its new packs to make that an entirely wireless system. So instead of this wiring linking your battery modules, you're going to have integrated RF antennas on circuit boards, and they run just a wireless communications protocol. It's a lot like Bluetooth, but runs with lower power. The upshot is that you've got cradle-to-grave monitoring of the battery health. And that means picture a warehouse filled with cells, the factory floor where they're being installed in cars, and then on to when these batteries are being used in cars. The company is going to be able to collect data on charges from that inventory to the cars, and hopefully they'll be able to use that data to improve the durability of their batteries. We make fun of the cliche that data is the new oil, but it really can be important, especially in the automotive context, right? When it comes to developing self-driving cars, we look at how many millions of miles each company has uh, achieved. And the same thing could happen here. GM's scale would allow it to leap ahead in data, even once other manufacturers adopt similar systems. Well, that's definitely what they're hoping. And if they do have one advantage in this, it is their scale. It's their manufacturing know-how. We've seen that as Tesla's weak link. Reliability is absolutely bottom of the barrel. Their cars are the least reliable cars of pretty much any manufacturer. And they don't like <laughs> that to be discussed a lot, but it's, it's true. And they're improving. But so for all their strength, that's their weak link is the manufacturing scale and the quality control. Where you look at for the peak of Toyota, 
you know, the Toyota production system that really swept every area of manufacturing in the world. And it, it is based sort of somewhat on scale. And as you said, data is king. And Tesla is, when you mentioned self-driving cars, Tesla has the most cars with the most active driver assistance systems on them. I won't call them self-driving because that oversells the technology they really have. But what's brilliant about Tesla is, is they've got this you know, army of guinea pigs basically out there and they're constantly pulling data from these cars and using it to develop the next generations of their self-driving technology. So that, right, that onboard data of cars is just critical to the development and the, the speedy development of all these technologies. In the battle between geriatric GM and the teenager Tesla, it's Tesla that's trapped by its battery legacy and GM has some kind of second mover advantage here. Potentially. And we don't know what Tesla's working on. They had a much ballyhooed battery day a few months ago that was one of their biggest fizzles ever. And usually we expect one of Elon Musk's grand pronouncements to really bump their stock price. And what for one of the first times, investors around the world were, were unimpressed because lo and behold, they didn't have any real battery breakthroughs to announce. And I think it illustrates just what a tough nut this is to crack. The idea, maybe it was unrealistic to expect that Tesla was going to have some miracle battery that could do what other batteries in the world cannot. And we, right, we've got to remember, very smart scientists and engineers all around the world are working on this problem. So this Eureka Thomas Edison thing is probably not going to be the way it goes. It's going to be slow and steady. And again, potentially the advantage of a GM is to operate at scale. And Tesla did it themselves. They wanted to have their own battery plants rather than just buying cells from LG Chem or Panasonic. General Motors is in a way mimicking their formula. They're building this giant gigafactory in Ohio with 50% more battery capacity than, than Tesla's in Nevada. This new battery factory in Lordstown, Ohio, is quite an undertaking. It's going to cost $2.3 billion. It's about 30 football fields in size. That's still smaller than the Gigafactory, about 1.4 million square feet to almost 2 million. But the battery production is expected to be greater than Tesla's when measured in gigawatt hours. That's, yep, yep, that's exactly right, Stephen. The plant itself is looking at an ultimate capacity of 30 gigawatt hours of batteries each year, 250 million cells. And now, of course, they just need cars to put them in. And you know, that's an open question with GM. It's always been the level of sincerity and the level of commitment in the company. Every legacy automaker is facing this catch-22 right now. They know they need to start transferring their production into electric cars. But yet, more than 98% of all the cars purchased in the world today are still have some form of fossil fuel combustion aboard. So they've got to continue to satisfy that market or they're cutting their own throat, but yet developing this new market. And in a way, it's easier to be Tesla. They're all electric all the time, where in a way, these companies are developing the technology that's going to put their old business out of business. It's got to be, it's a really tricky proposition. And it's pretty obvious why companies would be reluctant then to get into that business. It's, it's almost like they need to spin themselves off and have their own electric divisions. Yeah, the first step is the batteries in that factory, but the second step for GM is to revamp assembly line plants for, for which they're spending $2.2 billion in Detroit alone. Absolutely, and more hiring going on. And the idea ultimately is a $20 billion investment over the next five years. And 
Those 1 million cars, we should note, are those are cars include in China, which is currently by far the biggest electric car market on the planet today. So yeah, these companies are just engaged in this huge drive to seed the market and frankly, to find customers beyond Tesla for all the good feelings and the good vibes about electric. No one has managed to really, in my mind, sell a hit EV in America other than Tesla models. We've had some decent first attempts. You can go all the way back to GM's ill-fated EV1 and see that they were, you know, in a way, a first mover in electric way back when it never took. And then the Chevy Bolt was a, you know, pretty well-engineered car, but just it didn't catch on. And I think one of the lessons that people took was, at least for now, what people don't want in electric cars is just uh, an electric version of a frumpy, you know, low-budget economy car. And it seemed like originally that was our idea of what electric cars were going to be. They were going to be these eat-your-peas kind of cars, just strictly utilitarian passenger pods, not a lot of personality, very little excitement. Tesla, of course, changed that idea and said, aha, turns out, you know, people still want style and performance and luxury and they don't want to give any, they're like laptop buyers, you know, they, they want more and they want it to cost the same or less. So that's the big push for now. We see in, in all the General Motors cars coming out, there's not a frumpy Econobox in the bunch. And in fact, they're leading with a reborn Hummer EV. 10 years ago, you've been laughing, you think that's going to be your, you know, your initial mover in this space, a Hummer. But America wants EVs and they want trucks. So and uh, so they figured out, hey, we might as well try to sell these in the most popular segments where the masses are buying. And traditional cars are totally out in America. The, the SUV and truck share now is pushing 75%. Three of every four cars sold in America are not cars at all. They're a pickup truck or an SUV. Was the idea that the Hummer was a symbol of everything wrong about car making from a sustainability and climate point of view, and now it's going to symbolize GM's woke status? <laughs> I, I, I think that somewhere in there, that's, that's got to be what they believe. But I think it all traces back to the success that Tesla has had with their cars and the idea that GM, like Nissan with their Leaf, the first bid to attract people were going to be these affordable economy type cars, the idea that electricity being about efficiency. And that was going to be their prime selling point. Save the planet, save money, be efficient, save energy. And it turns out that that sales pitch doesn't work on very many. They still want their luxury car, their high design car, or shall we say in America, they want their luxury truck or their luxury SUV. If it runs on electricity and makes their life more convenient and saves them money and saves the planet, great. But that's not the prime buying motivation, saving money and saving fuel, especially with gasoline being dirt cheap, which is, of course, a a whole other question. But in the way that Tesla showed that, at least for now, people, they want all the attributes they always had in a car. They want design. They want a car that's going to impress their neighbors. They want a car that's fun and has good power and not a boring, frumpy little shoebox. And so for General Motors, which is hugely enmeshed in selling trucks and SUVs, like pretty much any automaker in America now, they know which side their bread is buttered on. They have a lot more chance selling an exciting product. And the Hummer, for better or worse, has a look and has a following. And it dovetails nicely with what people are wanting in vehicles right now. And that's any SUV that has an adventure outdoor four-wheeling vibe to it is just selling like gangbusters right now. It's counterintuitive, of course, but it's, it's where we are in a country where more than 75% of the sales are SUVs and pickups. And let's underline, that's not just the old bad Detroit, that's Mercedes, that's BMW, that's Porsche. 
in any case, any company that has an SUV, their SUVs are outselling their car models exponentially, whether that's a German company, a Japanese company, whatever. Strangely enough, that's starting to sweep the world as well. SUV sales are, are booming in, in Europe, they're booming in Asia, they're booming around the world. There's a price point issue here as well, right? In the long run, electric cars will be cheaper. They have fewer moving parts, maintenance is much lower and so forth. But for the moment, electric cars are more expensive. And if you add $15,000 to a low-end car, you've jumped the price you know, 50% or more. If you add $15,000 to a $60,000 car, you're in a range where the buyer is a lot less price sensitive. That's exactly it as well. And that's why we're seeing a Hummer priced at over $100,000 out of the gate. It's why we're seeing luxury SUVs from Mercedes, BMW, Porsche, all across the board. The mythical $35,000 Tesla Model 3 never really arrived. They discouraged people from ordering it. And now they've pulled it off the order books entirely. And the cheapest Tesla Model 3 is now $39,000. And you're exactly right. There's a lot less price sensitivity in the luxury reaches of the market to tack on another you know, $10,000, $15,000 in battery costs. And that also has spelled failure for EVs at the lower reaches of the market. And of course, that's going to be the acid test. We hear so much about this vaunted price parity between EVs and fossil fuel vehicles. And frankly, I think analysts have way jumped the gun. We, we keep hearing that price parity is two and three years away. Well, it's not. And anyone who tells you that, I believe, is lying. Sure, maybe price parity in an $80,000 luxury car but when someone can sell you a $25,000 Honda Civic that also is stuffed full of batteries is several years away. And, and that brings us back to the huge drive to reduce battery costs in that GMC Hummer. The top version of it is going to have a 200 kilowatt hour battery pack. That's twice the size of the largest pack in a Tesla vehicle. And it's partly key to making a truck that big have decent range. We're looking at 350 mile driving range, but a 200 kilowatt battery pack, do some you know, back of the envelope math at $100, even a kilowatt hour, that's a $20,000 battery pack, right? That, so that might work in a $100,000 vehicle. It's not going to fly in an affordable work truck or an affordable SUV. So there's still this huge, huge need to cut the price of batteries in half yet again from where they are today. And then we really, maybe we will see twenty dollars and $25,000 EVs. The, the day is absolutely coming, but patience is still required. Uh, GM is planning all-electric Cadillacs, but also all-electric Chevrolets. And what do you think the prices will be like? And how will these compare in terms of driving range, which is still a pretty big issue for most buyers? Right. Let's take the Chevy Bolt as an example. It's about a $37,000 car and take off this $7,500 tax credit and it becomes $30,000, a lot more palatable at that rate. But again, without government backing, without government incentives, you can see what happens. So the buyer of a Nissan Leaf or a Chevy Bolt comes to the showroom, sees a $37,000 car that in form and function and features is really no different from the conventional car that sells for twenty dollars or $22,000. Which one is that person going to buy unless they're a real true believer in electricity? And that's the contradiction that we're facing right now. Somehow, some way, the industry is going to have to give people the cars and the range that they want without a giant increase in price because Americans are greedy. Of course, we want, we want it all. And telling someone they need to spend $10,000 more because it's going to vaguely help the environment, that's just going to be a non-starter with a lot of people. 
I think I'm a typical buyer. I drive a Subaru and looking at the new Subarus, I could buy a really nice car that I'd be happy to drive for $28,000 or I can buy the new plug-in hybrid for (laughs) $40,000. That seems like a big jump to me. Right. And especially if you're not really seeing a return. And the elephant in the room is the price of gasoline in America, especially. I hate to be cynical about it, but my hunch is as long as gasoline is below $3 a gallon, there's just not a giant incentive for people to make such a big lifestyle switch. And we still lack the charging infrastructure. I just, a few hours ago, I I was driving Volvo's new Polestar 2. And for people who aren't familiar with Polestar, it's Volvo's new electric car division. Terrific car, a Tesla Model 3 competitor, great performance, really awesome interior with this new Android-based operating system. It's really, really slick, very Tesla-like and good performance. But the thing was still a $60,000 car for basically a compact crossover. The audience for a vehicle like that at that price is just limited, especially then we've got the issue of people who don't have the ability to charge at home. There's still a lot of apartment and condo dwellers in America. And the question of where you're supposed to charge, Tesla has done a brilliant job of addressing that on the road with its supercharger network, but a long way to go in that regard. And my argument is always on both the price of fuel. The number one thing we could do to promote EV adoption in America is a gasoline tax, a little bit of the stick part of the carrot and stick approach, but that is just a political non-starter. But like you said, when the the person has the Subaru, the Honda, the Chevy, the Ford that they're perfectly content with, asking them to inconvenience themselves in any way and to spend more money on top of it to get less range, it's a tough nut to crack. Even when you tell them all the advantages of electricity, as you mentioned, of potentially lower maintenance, not having to go to a gas station, being able to just charge overnight at home. But on the subject of range, it looks like they're going to be strongly competitive. Uh, you know, GM's battery leaders and, and EV leaders are saying that they believe 300 miles is the minimum to make for a viable EV. And that sounds about right. You know, you want to get yourself near the range that a tank of gasoline would take you. 200 miles is just not enough, except there's one exception. We do have tons of multi-car households in America. And in fact, you know, once you get out of the cities, of course, it's the norm for families to have two and three cars. One of the great hopes is people might have that EV as their commuter car, as their urban errand car, as their around town car. A really good one that's out right now is the Mini Cooper SE. It's just about the most affordable EV sold in America. When it starts at right around $30,000, you take the $7,500 tax credit, you take some local and state credits in places like California, there's places you're going to be able to get into this Mini for like $20,000. And it's like, wow, now you're talking. And so it's got barely got maybe an effective range of about 130 miles. And it doesn't sound like very much at all. But you do know when you're living in a city and you're just driving around town and drive around the suburbs, it's amazing how far 130 miles actually is. That might be a week of driving for just little daily take the kids to school, go to work and back. And again, you're pumping it back full as soon as you get back home anyway. So you've always got this car there that's got at least some useful range in it. So there's been a little eureka moment out there of people thinking maybe there is room in there for ultra affordable EVs that can carry smaller battery packs and have shorter ranges, but then still meet those very specific needs. But beyond that, absolutely, the drive for battery efficiency is huge. And Tesla is absolutely the leader there. It's really as much or more their electric motor efficiency than it is the amount of energy that they're carrying aboard. And we're seeing that. This Volvo is a good example. It has a 75 kilowatt hour battery pack. 
pretty much identical to the size of the pack in a Model 3. Yet this Volvo can, eh, the official range is 230 miles, real world, let's call it 200 to 210. Tesla has nearly the same size battery pack, and they're squeezing 350 miles out of the pack. Again, that's a hugely fudged figure. Tesla gets a huge break from the EPA in their testing. That 350 miles in real-world driving, let's call it 260, 270. Nothing like 350, but definitely more than what other people are squeezing out of the same size batteries, whether that's Volvo, Audi, Porsche, whoever. So that gets down to their software to their prime mover advantages, their huge and in-depth knowledge of their own batteries, their software, their electric motors, their entire package is more efficient than the packages of other vehicles. How will these new GM cars compare with Teslas in terms of range? General Motors is on that same drive, packing in large battery packs, but also trying to boost their efficiency. So pretty much anything we're going to see out of General Motors is going to be in the three to 400 mile range, basically. Driving is, for some of us, a burden. For others of us, it's still a pleasure. You drive more cars in a year than I have in my lifetime. What's been your favorite EV to date? My favorite EV has got to be the Porsche Taycan. At the moment, it's a little unfair. It's also one of the most expensive uh, EVs. When it came out and the critical consensus was how much better it was than a Tesla Model S, and I concurred with that, but also said, well, the thing loaded up to the gills is also $180,000. It damn well better be better than a Model S. It's a five-year newer design. It's a leading-edge design, and it's very, very expensive. There's a more affordable version that will start maybe just under $100,000, but man, the thing is is, is something else. It's one of those vehicles, you want to put somebody in it who's never been in an electric car before because it just blows their minds. And we tested it in Germany from the Audubon to Denmark. And the thing accelerates from zero to 60 in 2.3 seconds, which is even just a touch quicker than the fastest Porsche sports cars in their lineup. They're the, the Porsche advantage over the Teslas. It's a Porsche. Their advantages, their entire history is about building race winning and great driving high performance cars. It's their bread and butter. And so it's a real Porsche. It feels like a Porsche. It drives like a Porsche and it just happens to be electric. And so you, you get the, it's the best of both worlds and it's a really tremendous car. I still drive a stick. Well, good for well, good for you. Good for you. Keep the faith. Because I love being in just the right gear to power through a curve on a two-lane road of the Hudson Valley. Leaving Porsches aside, if you could compare comparable cars, a good stick car versus an electric, does the electric hold up in terms of the experience? It surely does. You know, performance people, the, you know, the whole line was people with gasoline in their veins were always skeptical of electric cars. And probably because of that image that these weren't going to be fun. They were going to be hair shirts, you know, and with all the joy of driving taken away, turns out it's potentially the opposite. The instant torque of an electric car is really something to behold when you experience it. It doesn't have to be a car that can go 180 miles an hour and be like a supercar. It can be uh, the family truckster and it can still have this terrific acceleration and dead quiet. For some people, the sound of that engine is a dear loss. I'm among them. I love hearing a really good motor rev really high. And you learn to live with that, especially if it feels pretty selfish to say that I'm so wedded to the sound of this V8 that I'm willing to keep doing pollution out of tailpipe. And electric cars also handle well. They're cheating a little bit. They've got all their weight packed really low in the floor and it, it creates a low center of gravity and it does help the car slingshot through turns. And to people who haven't experienced really high-end gasoline performance cars, it feels pretty remarkable at first. And they think that means that the car is faster in all conditions than say a sports car. And 
But the negative is that it's still saddled with a lot of extra weight and all things being equal, a 5,000 pound car is not going to handle as well as a 3,500 pound car. So that's another performance thing that electrics are going to have to deal with is trying to pare down all that excess weight. Weight is the enemy. One of the weird things about electric cars is once the battery runs low on power, you're still carrying the same weight around. Whether the battery is full of juice or dead empty, you know, you've got a thousand pounds or even 2,000 pounds of battery aboard. So you're really lugging this boat anchor around all the time. So making batteries lighter is, go- is going to be a big part of this as well. One of the most interesting things about the future that we're hurtling ourselves into is the way in which companies have expanded into platforms. And it can be an insidious intrusion You're an Amazon Prime customer, and so you look around for, you end up with an Alexa, and now you're looking for a thermostat, and you end up with an Alexa-compatible thermostat, and you're looking for a door lock and a, a secure system, and you end up with Amazons. We're seeing this with the Google platform. We're seeing this with the Apple platform, as well as the Amazon platform. The Volvo has the um, Android uh, built into it. And it seems to me that this platform question is even entering into the car world. And I know for a fact, people who have just bought a second Prius, for example, because they're so used to the Prius interface and the, the big screen in the middle and the way the seat fits. And are we getting locked into platforms, even in the car world? Well, absolutely. It's, it's part of their drive for efficiency that we see even just the basic building blocks of cars. General Motors is one. If you took all their combinations of transmissions and fossil fuel engines and the chassis that support cars, they had 550 combinations around the world. Their new building block, their, what they call their BEV2 platform, their battery electric vehicle platform, and all their Ultium batteries, they can build anything from the tiniest you know, little performance coupe to the massive Hummer and pickup with a combination of 19 jigsaw pieces. So what's that going to do for your manufacturing costs? It's going to greatly, and your complexity, and it's going to greatly reduce it. So even before electric started getting some traction, cars were going to that modular construction to save costs. And it's brilliant in a way. And the fear is that it's going to take the individuality out of automobiles. And we see it in ride sharing as well as they start expanding into ride sharing where our cars, to some people, cars are just a point A to B transportation. They don't think about what they're sitting in, who built it what powers it. They just want to get somewhere. And to them, it it doesn't matter what it looks like, who put it together, who owns the components, who owns the platform. So that consolidation is absolutely a trend in automobiles. Quite likely, we're going to see one or more legacy automakers continue to merge. Others fail, especially faced with these challenges of the electric revolution. Yes, we're going to see more of this and not less. And as you said, that gets right down to the infotainment systems in cars. One of the huge challenges they face is a car has to last for 10 or 20 years. Well, digital technology is moving so much more quickly than a car can evolve. Car companies spent years trying to keep Apple and and Google out of their cars for very good reason. They saw them as taking over this potentially very valuable space and a profit center for them as well. They would want to sell you their own navigation system, their own very hot, much marked up audio system and you know a $2,000 navigation system that only costs them $200. That's where the profit is in cars, not the car itself. It's all the frou-frou. So allowing Apple and Google to take that over, you can see what it is, almost an existential threat. But because smartphones 
have become ubiquitous. The gig is up, the game is over, and they know it. So they've had to make peace with this. And this new Android automotive system is an entirely Google-based embedded infotainment system that doesn't even run off your phone. It can eliminate your phone in the car. You can still hook it up if you want. But basically everything from Google Maps to Google Voice and Google Play Store is just embedded in the car. I have to add, it, it works great. I've never been in a car with more consistent and better voice commands. You know, I ask for an artist or a song, and it's searching everything from onboard Spotify to the onboard music library. Boom, two seconds later, you know, a whole list of songs is queued up. So, you know, a, the idea of having a cloud-based system just in your car, it's the way to go. And when it needs to be updated, that takes a minute over the air, and I can have the, the newest stuff in my car without having to run out and buy a new car every five years. I'd be remiss, Lawrence, if I didn't take this opportunity to ask you your thoughts about autonomous vehicles. I hesitate to even put a time on that because it all depends on what you mean by self-driving. And here's where Tesla has some blame on it, pushing the idea of the very poorly named autopilot, which was really nothing more than an adaptive cruise control system with some extra functionality, you know, collision avoidance. You're about to run into another car ahead of you or a pedestrian. Yes, the car would stop itself. It'll pace other cars in traffic, all those things. But the idea that that car was ready or that it any car was ready to let you sit back, take a nap, read a book. That is such a huge, huge, huge technical problem. People don't realize it's way more difficult than autopilot in the air. Plane can kind of kind of cruise in these basically empty skies for hours upon hour and really not encounter a single thing in, in its path. The road is just this living organism of variables and pedestrians and people. And just making a car be able to respond to any and all eventualities is very difficult. So with that preamble, it can be done. It's a huge engineering challenge. And one of the greatest experts in this is uh, Gil Pratt, the guy who ran the defense agency research into autonomous vehicles. Now he's Toyota's self-driving guru. And he calls where we're now the, the trough of disillusionment. We were all promised these self-driving cars. And now we're seeing that we're a long way away. We'll see them first in very tightly controlled geofence situations, airport shuttles, things where a vehicle has to just repeat this same repeatable route at low speed, corporate campuses, uh, universities, airports, places like that where cars can ferry people over short distances. We're very, very much on the verge of having vehicles that could handle that limited functionality today. That could be done. But driving through Times Square at rush hour in an autonomous vehicle a decade or more away, for sure. Well, this has been mainly very good news, Lawrence, especially hearing that I can save the planet without losing all the fun of driving. That's reassuring. It's a great story. It's a great ride, as we say in the storytelling business. Thanks for telling it in the pages of the magazine, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. We've been speaking with IEEE Spectrum contributing editor Lawrence Ulrich about his upcoming article, GM Bets Big on Batteries, in the December issue. Radio Spectrum is brought to you by IEEE Spectrum, the member magazine of the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, a professional organization dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity. This interview was recorded November 17, 2020. Our theme music is by Chad Crouch. Radio Spectrum can be subscribed to on the Spectrum website, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome your feedback on the web or in social media. For Radio Spectrum, I'm Stephen Cherry.